All right, go ahead and open up to Psalm 14. Um, last week, I, I think I did anyway, I told you guys that we would um, be continuing our Summer in the Psalm series through August. Um, and so this week we pick up in Psalm 14. Now, every day uh, we are faced with decisions. Um, some may be monumental decisions, some may be minor decisions, but nonetheless we face decisions every day. And every decision we face, they all shape who we are, um, and they begin to have an effect on our lives. They mold who we become and how we live. But none of those decisions are the most important decision. So um, the only decision that is truly monumental and, and truly determines and affects everything else is our decision on whether or not to trust in Jesus. Um, whether we surrender to Jesus as Lord and Savior, whether we surrender to Jesus as um, the Messiah and we surrender our lives to Him or not, that is the most important decision and most important um, quest that we could enter into. And it ultimately will affect everything else. Um, whether or not we trust in Jesus truly changes everything. It affects how we live our lives. It affects how um, we serve our families. It affects how we engage with our spouses. It affects how we perform at our jobs. It affects um, just how we carry ourselves and what we um, are prone to be involved in. It, it literally has an effect on everything um, because it, it not only changes our hearts, but it really kind of gives us a moral compass. Not to say that following Jesus is about morality, but following Jesus steers us on a path of righteousness as we have been made righteous by the work of Jesus. Now, in Psalm 14, we see... Um, and come face to face with man's true condition, um, which kind of leads us to believe that we are ultimately hopeless. Um, but as we work through Psalm 14, we are moved to a place of hope as we are reminded of the goodness and the truth that the Lord does bring restoration. With that, um, the main idea um, of the text this morning is this, that man's nature is to reject God, which leads to corrupt living, but the righteous rejoice in God's gift of salvation. Let's pray together. Father, we um, come to you now as we prepare to dive into this text, and God, we ask that you would be gracious to us and speak to us um, the truth that is in your word. God, that you would um, tear down the walls of um, rejection and, and misunderstanding within us, God, that we would be able to see and hear from you. That we would be changed by the glories of who you are and the truth of the message that you bring. God, you know every one of us here. You know our, our hearts and our life situations. And so, God, we ask that through your spirit, you would speak through your word into every one of our lives that you would meet us where we are. That you would make much of yourself. That you would convict us of sin. That you would allow us to be encouraged by the hope we have in Jesus. 
that we would day by day be transformed into the image of your Son, Jesus. And God, we come trusting that every one of us here has been brought here by you at this moment to hear your word. And we pray that we would be receptive and that we would respond in a way that would bring you glory and lead us into ultimate joy. So we ask that you would bless the reading of your word and make much of yourself in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, Psalm 14. As we begin to dive in, the very first point that we see is man's true condition. Starting in verse 1, it says, to the choir master of David. So again, it's a psalm written to the choir master. Uh, most commentators uh, believe that this is um, referring to God himself as being the chief choir master. Um, and it's a psalm written by David. And he begins, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. And so he begins, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. That is, the fool is one, and I'm saying fool because that's what the scripture says. Um, he is saying that the fool is one who completely denies God's existence. He completely denies the fact that God is there and even would go so far as to wish God away. We see this all the time. Um, with people trying to deny um, the, the Creator. Um, they try to deny the existence of God. Just this weekend, um, Alice and I took our girls to Jacksonville just kind of as a last hurrah. We hadn't really got to spend much time together this summer, and so we just spent a couple days just doing random stuff. And one of the things we did was we went to the Museum of Science and History, you know, because we're a nerd family, and um, that's what we like. And we go to the planetarium, and, and she's like, yeah, it's, you know, you got to pick which show you want to do. And I was like, I just assumed it was all the same, but there weren't. And so we only had two options because we went later in the afternoon, and she was like, the kids would really like this one. And so we're like, okay, we'll do that. And we get in there, and it's um, based off of some PBS program and um, called the Zula Patrol. I don't even know if that rings a bell to anybody, but they're space explorers, and they basically govern... The, the galaxy, they're kind of like space police. Um, and there's this um, character that's dumping trash all over the place, and, and she decides to beat the system and goes to Earth, um, time traveling. I know this is weird. And she's starting to dump trash, but they figure it out. Um, and so, um, but then one of the Zulu Patrol begins to tell the rest of them kind of the story of how Earth became, and it was all like stars banging together and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I mean, I'm, and I just keep looking at laugh, Allison, and I'm laughing because I'm like, is this actually what people perceive is the beginning? Um, and I've heard it said it takes a lot more faith to believe in the Big Bang than it does in a divine creator. Um, and the more I see stuff like that, the more I'm, I'm drawn to that conclusion. But nonetheless, every day we're faced with people that deny um, divine design. We're, we're faced every day with people that deny the existence and the working of a creator God, a holy God. Um, but the reality is this, no matter how much you deny God's existence and God's working, he's still God. We can deny all day, every day, 
but that doesn't deny the fact that he is there. And what we see in our life and in our culture are really two types of atheists, okay? Um, we see professing atheists. Um, so um, immediately you probably think of Ian Hawking, Richard Dawkins, who um, are, or were, I guess, are and were, because Hawking's dead now, but um, very vocal about the fact that God does not exist, that, you know, we're just here, you know, blah, 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 you know, whatever they say, okay? And then you have um, practical atheists who may not necessarily deny the existence of God with their mouth, but they do with their life. Um, and, and unfortunately, there are a lot of those. Um, even some of us occasionally become practical atheists. Um, and the reality is this, that denying God, whether as a professing or a practical atheist, leads to a life of corruption and abominable deeds. Um, he says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and they do abominable deeds and there is none who does good. So why do they do corrupt and abominable deeds? Why do they live lives of corruption? Well, because they have denied the existence of God. They have denied um, their need for God. And because of all of that, plus their nature being a sin-stained nature, which is all of us, they fall into the last part of verse 1. It says that they, there is none who does good. And then he goes into verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside, and together they have become corrupt, and there is none who does good, not even one. So again, you may reject Jesus, but he still sees all things. You may deny Jesus, but you can't deny him out of existence. Does that make sense? Like you can say all that you want that Jesus isn't there, and you can deny the fact that he is all sovereign, that he is all knowing, that he is all wise, but it doesn't change the fact that he is those things. Uh, the scripture attests to the fact that God is there, that God is present, that God is active, that God is moving. Um, Romans tells of the fact that God created all things, and, and just by looking at nature, we can tell that God's hand was there. And the hard truth for us is that as people, and now we live in a culture that tells us completely opposite of this, but we are totally depraved people. Completely unable to come to him because of our sin. Why? Verse 2, I mean verse 3 says, because they have all turned aside. Every one of us um, from the moment that Adam sinned have inherited a sin nature. Because of one man's sin, all have sinned. And so we have all become totally depraved people, unable to come to God. He must come to us. Now, culture, again, is going to tell us something completely different. That we're inherently good, and we choose to do evil, or that we're inherently good, and we just have missteps along the way. Uh, we're inherently good, but we can... Um, right the ship if we so choose, but the fact is, is we cannot right the ship because there is nothing within us that is good. And the scripture again is attesting to that. It says, there is none who does good, no, not even one. 
And so we desperately need God to come to us. It says that our hearts become corrupt. Our lives become corrupt. And because of that corruption, we see really two types of action happening. Two types of people. Two types of hearts. First you have, it says, that there are none who understand. We know that God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. We have encountered this probably on our own if we are Christians to where we can read Scripture and read Scripture and read Scripture. But unless the Holy Spirit comes in and changes our hearts, we may as well just be reading Greek. Because sometimes it just does not make sense. And, And I've said this before that the gospel without the Holy Spirit's moving in our life doesn't make a lot of sense. Why would the God of all things come to an earth full of sinful people and give his life to save wretches? It doesn't make a lot of sense, right? No other story we read spells anything of that nature. No other... um, Fairy tale has that type of working, and yet here we have something that is completely true, completely real, and we have the God of all things, who holds all things together, who sustains all things by the word of his power, coming to live with us to give his life for us. And it doesn't make a lot of sense until the Holy Spirit reveals the truth of God to us. And you also have those who don't seek, right? None who seek. We don't seek because there's nothing within us that is good. Now, again, every day, we probably come face to face with folks who are not necessarily opposed to the things of God as in vocally. And they wouldn't say, you know, I, I hate God or I, have, I want nothing to do with the church. But typically the response would be, I'm okay with that, but I need to get my junk together first. I need to get my act straight. I need to get some things in order. But the reality is, is that can't happen. We can't clean ourselves up before we come to God. We have to surrender to God and allow Him to clean us. I can't get my stuff together. I need God to do that for me. I can't cleanse myself of sin. Only God can do that. I can't walk in righteousness without God leading me by His Spirit. And so you have those who don't understand and you have those that don't seek, which ultimately is every one of us. Because, according to Romans, we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's nothing within us that desires God. We're enemies of God, haters of God, children of wrath. One New Testament author even calls us antichrists because of the sin within us. And it's not until God comes and He changes our hearts that we can see Him and we want to pursue Him.
So denying God, denying God's existence leads to lack of understanding and lack of seeking. I love this quote from Spurgeon. You're actually going to get two Spurgeon quotes today. So for those of you that keep count of how many times I quote Spurgeon, two today um, that are in my notes. You might get another one along the way. Who knows? Um, He says, what a picture of our race is this. Save only where grace reigns. There is none that doeth good. Humanity, fallen and debased, is a desert without an oasis, a night without a star, a dunghill without a jewel, a hell without a bottom. There was an interview, and I, I don't have this in my notes, so it's going to be kind of spotty, but um, with Richard Dawkins, this has been many years ago, and it was the comment was basically made to him, your, your worldview seems to be one um, that is cold, um, bleak, and empty. And, and he said, yes. He said, I agree with that. And he said, it is cold, bleak, and empty, but when we die, we're dead. Who cares? What's it matter? Why anyone would choose to walk that path, I don't know. Um, But one of the joys of surrendering to Christ is knowing that we have a hope. A hope that all things will be made right. A hope that all will be made new. To live a life of emptiness and just pure bleakness. I don't even know if that's a word, but I just made it one. How depressing of a life is that? To not have hope. And, and here we see David writing, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now we have to come face to face with the reality that while most of us in here, and, and I don't know, there, there, may, there may be some of you in here that profess that there is no God and you may just be doing the church thing because your spouse wants you to or you know it's the right thing to do or it's a good business practice or blah, 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 whatever, you fill in the blank. But more than likely, probably not. But how many of us in here fall into the category of practical atheism? Where we're not going to deny God with our lips. We're not going to deny God's existence. We're not going to deny God's working not with our lips. You know, somebody has a conversation, yeah, I know Jesus, I'm a Christian, you would probably quickly say, yeah, I am too. I love the Lord. Go to church every Sunday. But our lives tell a completely different story. Now, I know that we are a people that believe that salvation is a work of God. And it's not by our works that we're saved, right? Ephesians 2. But I also believe that, and and I believe the scripture teaches this, that once we surrender to Jesus and we trust Jesus for salvation, our lives become radically different in in such a way that we want to, to work and serve him. We want to give him all we have for his glory. Now, 
to say that we love and serve Jesus, but yet our lives tell a completely different story, is that truly living a surrendered life to him? I mean, because we live, I mean, all right, so we're in, we're in deep south, like, Bible Belt culture. Now, it's changing rapidly, and I get that. But I would probably say most of us are on social media in some form or fashion. Right? You might be the rebel that says, no, Facebook, I don't want nothing to do with you. But you might have a secret Twitter account, so you're trying to figure out what's going on. You know, because not many people around here use Twitter, so you can use Twitter and kind of get away with it. Or you might be the Instagram person and say, I don't really care about all the words, I just like to look at pictures. But nonetheless, you probably use social media in some form or fashion. And if you do, you probably have multiple friends and acquaintances that in one post it's like, Jesus! And the next post it's, you fill in the blank. Or you might see people who say, Jesus! And then you see them somewhere else and you're like, ooh. Now, there's a line, right? There's a line between living in grace and legalism. We've talked about this a lot over the summer. Um, and, and we're not going to be perfect. Understand that. But there's, a, there's an aspect of, of holiness and living a life that attempts holiness for God's glory and our joy that most of us probably try to blur. Um, and I say us because I'm no different. Um, but if I come in contact with someone who's known me for a long time, and I try to sit down and have a conversation about Jesus, are they going to hear because and receive because of what they see? Or are they going to reject because of what they see? It's just something to think about. If I go and have a conversation about Jesus and, and start inviting someone to church and trying to live for Jesus, are they going to say, you know, is this something new, something happened? You know, even though I've been professing Christ for, professing Christ for years. You know, so what, is, what story is my life actually telling? Is it telling that I'm living for the glory of God or is it telling that I am simply a practical atheist that wants nothing to do with God and his ways other than saying it some? Just food for thought. But just remember, verse 1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Um, but the good news is this. The Lord restores. Look at verses 4 through 6. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? They are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. God defends the righteous. You know, living as a Christian, right? So we just spent a lot of time talking about people who basically deny God with either their lips or their lives, right? But actually living as a true, you know, old school language, blood-bought son or daughter of the king, it's hard in our world. And 
it's hard because of the scrutiny we face, the, the shame we face. See, because the corrupt, those who say in their heart there is no God, the, the corrupt, they treat God's people as fools. So they actually treat us the other way around. See, the scriptures say in the fool said in his heart there is no God. But the world actually calls us foolish because we believe in the miraculous. We believe in the divine. We believe that God created all things, that there was a divine designer. We believe that God came to us in the form of a man born through a virgin, that he lived and that he died and that he rose again. And the world tells us we're foolish because we believe that. And as the scripture is saying, they eat us as they would bread. How many of you have had, tried to have a conversation with a, an atheist before? How many times have they tried to make a mockery of you because you believe in something that they can't explain? It's reality. But here's the promise of hope. Scripture says that God is with the generation of the righteous. He never leaves, right? He never forsakes. Hebrews says he is our great high priest. He knows what we are going through. I mean, in fact, they denied his own existence to his face, and they murdered him for making the claims he did. And he says, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Living a life of a Christian is a very difficult life, but it is one that will be so filled with joy as we pursue the glory of God. And, and the truth is, is you may face mockery. And if you truly live for Jesus, that probably could be rephrased to you will face mockery. You will face persecution of some sort. We might not all, all be faced with a sword, but we may be... Um, picked at and whatever you fill in the blank but I want us to be encouraged by the fact that the Lord defends the righteous he's with the generation of the righteous to never lose heart to never be ashamed of the gospel message and to continue to press on for the glory of God and the good of his people and here's Spurgeon quote number two now the language is interesting here so just know that. Remember, he is, you know, mid-19th century London, okay? He says, you young men in the great firms of London, you working men that work in the factories, you are sneered at. Let them sneer. If they can sneer you out of your religion, you have not got any worth having. Remember, you can be laughed into hell, but you can never be laughed out of it. Oh, but they will point at you. Cannot you bear to be pointed at? But they will chaff you. Chaff. Let them chaff you. Can that hurt a man that is a man? If you are a molluscus, I might have said that wrong, science teacher, creature that has no backbone, you may be afraid of jokes and jeers and jests, but if God has made you upright, Stand upright and be a man. Basically what he's saying is the world is going to hate you. The world is going to mock you. The world is going to persecute you. But if you truly believe in Jesus, stand up. 
Never let what anybody says try to crumble the foundation that we have. Because the foundation we have in Jesus is a sure foundation. Be encouraged by the goodness of Jesus. Be encouraged. And, and, and this is another little side note, okay? Um, I'm not great at apologetics, but one of the things that you know, I have faced, too, in trying to talk to people who I know who are smarter than me, which is a lot of people, um, trying to talk about the gospel, you know, and, and kind of being afraid because I don't know all the answers. You know, well, what if they, and, and I've heard this before, right? I've um, even probably used this before at some point, but what if they come up with, you know, what if something happens or what if something is um, discovered that, that questions or, or goes against what I've been taught my whole life? To truly believe in who God is, to truly believe that He is all-knowing, that He is all-wise, that He is all-sovereign, to truly believe that the Bible is His Word, divinely given to us through the writing of human authors, is also to truly understand that there is nothing that can be said, there is nothing that can be discovered, there is nothing that's going to happen that will ever question the validity of what we have before us. It is sure and it is steady. And you can take it to the bank. Because if we believe God to be who He says He is, then we can trust His Word with zero semblance of doubt. So stand firm. Fight the good fight of faith. And know that the Lord defends the righteous. Now, in verse 6, he says, You who would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Now, there's several times in the Psalms where he refers to the poor, and I want to make a note that a lot of those times what we see is actually reference to the poor in spirit. Right? So, I'm going to turn to Matthew 5. It'll be up here. Um, and so you can follow along Matthew 5 with me. Verses 1 through 16. I think I put it up there. There it is. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus writes, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, why poor in spirit? Because it's the poor in spirit who understand their, their need for God, their desperate need for salvation. It's the poor in spirit who understands that I can't do this alone. I can't do this on my own. I can't save myself. I need another. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. It says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. 
for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Then he goes on, he says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set upon a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, the poor in spirit knows dependence on God. They trust God's leading. They find counsel in God's word. They go to the Lord in prayer. Jesus said, I did not come for the healthy. I came for the sick. And typically, those of us who deny our need for God, we're not poor in spirit. <laughs> we could use some humility. Because it goes against our nature to say we need anyone or anything. It goes against our nature to say that we are totally depraved and we need another to save us. It goes against our nature to submit to anybody's rule and reign other than our own. But the poor in spirit, the Lord becomes a refuge to. Because we know we desperately need Him. And we trust that He is the one that we need. You see the, the kind of catch-22 there? We need God and we know that He is all we need. And the good news is that salvation will come. Look at verse 7. He says, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of His people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. See, the Messiah was promised to them. Back in Genesis 3, God made a promise that He would make all things new, that He would crush the head of the serpent, even though the serpent bruised the heel of the promised one. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that Genesis 3 promise. That He would come, that He would have His heel bruised, yes. He would taste the sting of death, but ultimately He would crush sin and death forever. And that was three days after this heel was bruised. And, and He makes the promise in Revelation that He will come to make all things new. Now David had not experienced Jesus coming yet. But he trusted the Lord's promise. There's, there's a lot of faith there. Just like with Abraham, God tells Abraham, go, and I'm going to you know, build you as a great nation, and I'm going to bless the earth through your seed. And Abraham basically asks, but where? And God just says, go, and you'll figure it out when you get there. And we joked about this before, but you get in a car with your spouse and you say, all right, where are we going? And you say, just drive, we'll figure it out. That usually doesn't work. Um, I, I mean, most of us want directions, right? Or at least some semblance of direction. But um, the faith of Abraham to just trust the Lord, the faith of Abraham when God called him to sacrifice his son, the son who was supposed to be the promised son that would bless the entire world, um, to actually take him up on the mountain and prepare him for sacrifice and be willing to sacrifice him, to just simply trust the Lord, the, 
the faith of Moses, um, the faith of Joshua, the faith of David. We just see it over and over and over again. They trusted the Lord. And here, we actually have seen the Messiah come. We have sure and steady promise of Jesus. And are we trusting Him? Are we trusting the Lord's leading? Are we trusting the Lord's word? Are we trusting the Lord with our life? Because if we're living as a practical atheist who is denying the existence of God with our lives, and most definitely if we're denying God with our lips... Can we truly say that our hope is in Him? I don't think so. I don't think so. What are the things that are most important to us? What does our life say? Is our hope in Him? See, David was looking forward. Our oh, that our that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion, come from God. That our hope would come from God. And when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. Restoration leads to rejoicing. You want to know why people live radically different lives when they're saved, truly saved by God? Because they know what God has saved them from. They know how an act of mercy has been dealt to them and their lives are forever changed. And I don't know what it is about our culture that leads us to live timid lives. We're afraid to sing songs of rejoicing to God. We're afraid to live for the glory of God. We're afraid to um, proclaim the goodness of God. Maybe we have just simply forgotten the joy of salvation. So I want to leave you with a question. Is the way you are living your life showing that you rejoice over restoration in your life? Let's pray. Father, my hope, my prayer is that we would never cease to be a people that rejoice in your goodness. That we would be a people who openly and honestly proclaim your salvation. And God, that our lives, every one of us, would be radically altered by the hope we have in you. Again, God, I don't know everyone's story in here completely. I don't know where they're at, where they're going through. So yeah, there might be those in here, Father, that deny your existence. God, I pray that you would soften their heart and make them realize the truth that you are good, that you created all things, and you you hold all things together by the word of your power and that salvation comes from you and you alone. God, for most of us who live lives that deny you in the everyday, may we be forever changed for your glory and our joy. In Christ's name we pray.